If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. Welcome to hour number one of this week's edition of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is... John Ziegler, I am your host. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and the events of my often bizarre life and where we provide you with a two-hour oasis, and I mean a full two-hour, no commercials, oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can check out All of our past shows, which I urge you to do, as well as all of my most recent articles and major interviews, the columns that I write for Mediate. I wrote uh, three of them this week, one of which was about the top 10 things we learned about the inauguration, or I guess I should say what the inauguration taught us or should have taught us. I think you'll find that to be interesting. I also wrote a column on all of the people and entities most responsible for the Trump presidency and therefore in line for the most blame and or praise, depending on what happens next, which, frankly, nobody knows what the hell to expect. Although, based upon the very early reviews, it does not look good at all. I'll get to all of that in hour number two. We are joined by Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, my good friend from Louisville, Kentucky, for an extraordinary interview, an interview that you will not hear the likes of anywhere else between a conservative and a liberal. Uh, Extraordinary amount of, I think, honesty and insight. So make sure you pay attention and check out our number two of this week's podcast. By the way, next week's guest, and we will try, although I can't guarantee, to have a, uh, a good guest each and every week is scheduled to be former CIA director Michael Hayden, who has been rather critical of Donald Trump. And obviously, given Trump's speech to the CIA yesterday, I'm sure he'll have some interesting things to say on next week's edition of the podcast. I do the podcast from Southern California. And for the last several weeks, I have been mentioning, because I think it deserves to be mentioned and nobody else talks about this, the fact that, um, oh, by the way, the California drought is over. And every time I say this, people go, well, no, it's not technically over. Um, People in in large portions of California, we are building arcs at this point. Where I live, I've I've lived in Southern California now for, uh, I guess, 14 years. And we've had a couple of really, really rainy winters. Uh, To me, there's been nothing compared to this one so far. And it's not just rain In Southern California, it's snow up in the mountains where it really matters when it comes to our snow supply. And the reason why I find this significant, and I I, I apologize for continuing to harp on this, but nobody is talking about this. And this is why those who are in favor of changing the world because of supposed climate change or global warming end up winning because our side, even now that we have a president of the United States who apparently agrees with the small percentage of people who supposedly, actually, it's not the smallest percentage of people. It's a small percentage of experts, but the it seems like almost a majority of people are very skeptical of the whole climate change, global warming thing. But 
whenever the other side makes a claim that turns out to be false, they pay no price for it. And in the last decade, we have seen droughts in Florida, Texas, and now here in California, all blamed by the media and by supposed experts on climate change slash global warming, all of which went away on their own. And in here in California, they went away in a very big way in incredibly short order. Less than two years ago, it was catastrophic. There was no snowpack in April. Well, the snowpack, as of last check, is like at 170% of normal. And the percentage of the state that's now even officially in drought is becoming minuscule, at least with regard to severe drought. And I, I don't even buy that. Because trust me, there is nobody living in California right now who thinks that they are in the middle of a drought. Nobody. And so, you know, being a person of logic, it, it's important for me that, hey, wait a minute, if you make a claim and it turns out to be dead wrong, there should be some accountability for that. Like, for instance, if you call the election saying that Donald Trump has a very small chance of winning and you're wrong, there should be accountability. Okay, I was wrong. And I have no problem with accountability for that. But why is there no accountability on this climate change, global warming issue? And by the way, it's not just that the drought ended in California. They can't even get it right from year to year. Because last year, we had an El Nino, who was, which was supposed to give us all sorts of rain, and it really didn't. We barely, and I, think, I don't even think we got average rainfall winter. This year was a La Nina, which was supposed to further exacerbate the drought. That's what the forecast was. Oh, don't expect much rain. It's a La Nina. The drought's not going to get any better. Well, guess what happened? They were wrong on El Nino. They were wrong on La Nina. And in less than two years, they've been wrong about the catastrophic drought. Because after all, if it was being caused by climate change and now it doesn't exist, then I guess your evaluation of climate change is wrong. Look, I, I don't know. The climate has always been changing. Could man have an influence on that? Yes. But to me, I fail to see what the implications of that are, the negative implications. Drought or overflooding is about the most dramatic thing you can have, whether it's in the form of hurricanes or whatever. Basically, hurricanes, tornadoes, and drought are the three biggest problems that we could have with climate. There's no indication in this country at all that we have a problem with any of the three. Drought is almost non-existent throughout the country. Tornadoes are down in the last several years. Hurricanes are down in the last several years, which is why about the only part of the country that's in drought is Florida, because they've hardly had any hurricanes. Anyway, it's a, just a pet peeve of mine, especially since almost nobody's talking about it. Our side never wants to take any credit when we're right, because we're always so afraid of being attacked. And the other side, you know, they always say, well, you can't, you can't tell anything by Micro weather events. That's weather, not climate. Well, you do it all the time. You told us that this drought was because of climate change and global warming. Just Google it. All sorts of major media outlets did exactly that. So what now? All right. Obviously, the big story this week was the inauguration of uh, Donald Trump. Something that I never thought was very likely to happen at all. Thought there was very little chance of that happening, even up on election day. Uh, but uh, obviously, uh, he got incredibly lucky. Despite losing the popular vote by 3 million votes, he won the Electoral College. And during the transition, there was you know this hope, and I had it as well, that Trump would suddenly pivot, that he would change, that he would become presidential. And there were a couple of moments where that was... Seemingly possible, but by and large, that faded pretty quickly. And surprise, surprise, a 70-year-old man did not suddenly change magically because the magnitude of what he was about to embark on hit him. And frankly, in many ways, the opposite occurred. But there was still hope. You know, there's always hope up until wedding day, right? <laughs> You know, a lot, a lot of people make a major mistake. I may have been one of them thinking that, okay, once you get married, everything changes. Well, it does change. 
but certain things are going to stay the same. But you're you're always hopeful that okay, you get married and maybe then all of a sudden things will come together. That the negative aspects of the situation will suddenly and mysteriously dissipate because all the rules have changed and we're far more serious now. We're playing for keeps. And that was certainly the hope. And again, I'm one of those that had hope. I, even though I've been an ardent Trump critic, I am somebody who absolutely wants the country to succeed. And I want Trump to succeed. Although I'm somewhat conflicted about that because I actually think in the long run, him succeeding may have, rather dramatic consequences, but that's another complicated story for perhaps another day. But in the short run, if he fails, um, we are screwed. We are absolutely screwed in every possible way, especially as conservatives, because now, as as incredibly strange as it is, what's left of conservatism is tied to Donald Trump, because if he fails and Democrats take over immediately again, uh, and they might take over if things go very badly in a huge way, there's no coming back. Because then, for a generation, Republicanism is branded with Trumpism, which would be deemed to be a failure. So the stakes are very, very high here. This was unnecessary. I'll probably say it every week we do this podcast. My bottom line on Donald Trump is I think he'll do silly good things, but we way, 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 way overpaid for whatever we're going to get in return. Now, hopefully we'll get some really good things. And I, I want to emphasize, I think there will be good things that will happen. Heck, the bust of Winston Churchill returned to the Oval Office. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Now, no, seriously, I, I think that's great. We better get a hell of a lot more than that, though, for the price that we paid, because we paid everything. We gave up everything put everything on the line just to make sure that Hillary Clinton wasn't president. And somehow that succeeded. (laughs) But now we find out whether or not we find out two things, just how much we paid and whether or not we're going to really get anything in return. It's very much like a let's make a deal situation. We decided to choose what was behind a mystery door number one rather than go with a sure thing like, for instance, a Marco Rubio who would have won almost certainly and wouldn't have brought any of the drama or the negatives or the risk that will be inherently involved with the Donald Trump presidency. So there was this hope that suddenly on Inauguration Day, everything would change. And, you know, wow. I mean, it, w- it was amazing, wasn't it? He, he uh, gave his speech. It was unifying. It was presidential. He pivoted very nicely. He uh, embraced the concept of the Constitution and welcomed the other side of the debate to join him for the benefit of the country. And then, you know, he started immediately to fulfill all of his promises. I thought the most remarkable part was when Hillary Clinton was immediately escorted from the inauguration in handcuffs and was locked up for her crimes Immediately, the massive deportation force started to spread throughout the country, especially here in Southern California, to round up illegal immigrants and deport them. That was extraordinary. To do that on day one, when we were concerned about whether or not our maid was going to be able to make it, we're still not certain. We, we haven't been able to reach her on her, on her cell phone, but you know, the deportation forces have been all over the place. The, the swamp is being drained. I mean, he... He decided to not go to that luncheon where all of the swampy creatures from both political parties kiss each other's ass and give each other fellatio because he just didn't, he thought that was unseemly. He didn't want to be part of that. So in part of drain the swamp, he decided to tell them to go screw themselves. And when he was signing uh, all of those initial papers after his inauguration, he didn't have any of the congressional leaders standing behind him joking with him, chummy, and, you know, begging for the pens that he was using because that's, you know, that's what a normal president would do. He didn't do any of that because he's draining the swamp. He immediately proposed a plan to replace Obamacare, which, frankly, I didn't think he was ever going to do because I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to do that. 
almost mathematically impossible, but I was impressed by him doing that on day one. He named his SCOTUS pick for the Supreme Court of the United States, and his entire focus on day one was making America great again. So I thought that was all fantastic. And then I woke up and realized that that was all bullshit. None of that actually happened. The reality was very, very, very different. The speech itself was an embarrassment. It was clearly written by Steve Bannon, his uh, senior advisor who used to run Breitbart.com, a guy who I met with several years ago. I guess this was back in uh, 2009. I had dinner with him, I think, in a Denny's. I remember very little about it, mainly because I found him to be so unimpressive. You know, he's unshaven and his hair's unkempt and he's not an impressive figure. And in retrospect, it was very obvious to me why he had met with me. I had just made a movie about Barack Obama's election called Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected and Palin was targeted. It featured an interview with Sarah Palin. I went and did almost every major television show, including the Today Show, to debut the film mainly because of the interview with Palin, by far the best that she's ever done, the most extensive she ever did about the 2008 election. And in retrospect, it's very clear that Bannon was trying to use me to get in Sarah Palin's pants. Not not literally, I don't think, figuratively. Uh, he ended up doing a movie about her the next year, and it's obvious to me, again in retrospect, that Palin was Bannon's first Trump. I think he thought that he could do with Palin in 2012 what he ended up doing with Trump in 2016. And by the way, as insane as that sounds to people who have the public, normal public perception of Sarah Palin, I don't think he was too far off in that, except he had the wrong year. As I told Sarah Palin the first time I ever met her when she asked about this, I said, stay low, keep your nose clean, get reelected and run for president in 2016 because they're not going to have a good candidate to run against us because Obama's going to be the moon, the star, the stars and the sky and everything else. And sure enough, I was right about that. That's why we ended up with Hillary Clinton and Palin uh, taking my advice and Bannon probably would have embraced her instead of Trump because she's actually was at one point a real conservative. Uh, History could be very, very different. But Bannon wrote the speech, which meant it was incredibly populist not conservative, and also, frankly, scary. And I guess the one moment that it proves just how populist and scary the speech was was when, whether intentional or not, the speech plagiarizes the movie Batman. That's right. It plagiarizes Batman, the supervillain Bane. Bane, who was the supervillain who was pretending to take on the establishment on behalf of the people. Well, listen to this, and it's only a few seconds long, and so because it's only a basically a sentence fragment, it's hard to call it true plagiarism, but even the cadence here is pretty remarkably similar. So here's Trump followed by supervillain Bane from the Batman movies. And giving it back to you, the people. And we give it back to you, the people. Yeah, that's populism right there, folks. Of course, it's also, it's actually worse than populism because it's inherently contradictory. Trump's theme there was we're going to give the power back to you, the people. By the way, I'm in favor of that in concept, obviously, under (laughs) certain restrictions that would be dictated by the fact that we live in a democratic republic. I do not believe in mob rule, especially since the masses have proven themselves to be complete asses, especially in this particular election cycle. I mean, because after all... I love the poorly educated. But the reality is that that concept is inherently contradictory to other elements of Trump's alleged philosophy, which is that government should be involved with and can fix... Every element of your life. Health care for everybody, Trump has said, among other things. But there are all sorts of elements of life 
where Trump is on record saying that government can and should be directly involved in fixing it. Frankly, he has said at his convention speech, I alone can solve our problems. In other words, give me the power of the federal government and I'll solve your problems. Not by shrinking the government, getting out of government, government out of your life, not by some sort of libertarian philosophy, but by this contradictory notion that populism and government control can somehow work together. So we're going to give you the, the power, you people, but you're going to work the government to fix your life, to safeguard you. Law and order, by the way, another element of this whole thing. It's all very scary. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense philosophically. And it's certainly not conservative. Even newly minted Trump fanboy Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson, who I used to work for, by the way, briefly as a writer for Daily Caller, uh, he now has a hit new show on Fox News Channel getting great ratings because he's all up Trump's butt no matter what it is. And he realizes that that's the way to get ratings, especially on Fox News Channel. But even Tucker Carlson admitted that speech was not conservative. It was very populist. It was very dark. And frankly, it wasn't accurate. When he talked about American carnage and how horrible things were or are, and look, things are not great. But you can't argue that things are as bad or anywhere near worse than they were back in 2009. You just can't. Now, I don't believe that Barack Obama did much of anything to help get us back to where we are. But we're nowhere near in as bad a shape today as we were in 2009. I, I still think the future could be very, very bleak, regardless of Donald Trump, because I, I think that our foundation has eroded on numerous levels, economically, socially, culturally, certainly our media, almost every aspect of American life, educationally, the foundation has eroded. So we, we may fall through the ice fairly quickly here. But as of right now, I think his vision of America was, was not accurate. But it was, it was accurate for his targeted demo. His targeted demo, it's very obvious, those people who voted for him are those who have felt left out. And I understand that. I get it. There's absolutely enormous numbers of people who have been left out of whatever this recovery is called. And for them, I guess there has been carnage. But that's not the majority, and that's not a particularly optimistic way for you to start your presidency. So, but by and large, you know, Inauguration Day went pretty well. No major snafus. You know, there were some protests, but Trump, Trump didn't do anything horrendously. I actually thought that at the inaugural ball when he danced with Melania and was then joined by Mike Pence and his wife and his children to the Frank Sinatra song, My Way, I thought that was really cool. I actually almost got a little bit choked up, which I never do with Trump. It actually almost made him likable to me. So, you know, it, it was seemed human. I felt like, wow, what, it must be a great moment for that guy. And so I, I was more than willing to give him a chance. Still am, but what we've seen in the last 36 hours since then does not bode well at all. I mean, because things really went haywire in a big way awfully fast. Boy, that escalated quickly. And, and not by just a little bit, by the way. I mean, when, when you grade it on a scale of, of 1 to 10, what's happened since Inauguration Day? These go to 11. Yeah, I think this one is just about to 11. What I'm referring to specifically is that Trump went to speak to the CIA and in front of the CIA memorial talked about mostly him, about how great he is, about how smart he is, and most bizarrely, about how big his crowds at the inaugural were. Flat out lied, said that 1.5 million people attended his inauguration, which would have been an all-time record, shattering the record 
by far that was set by Barack Obama back in 2009. And, and he was doing this based upon the fact that from the podium, he thought the crowd went all the way back to the Washington Monument, which I can understand. I mean, from that perspective, it did look like the crowd went all the way back to the Washington Monument, but it didn't. And there were photographs to prove this from the other direction that couldn't be more clear. And the New York Times had the audacity to tweet out a photograph from 2009 and compare it to 2017, which, by the way, the Interior Department retweeted, causing their Twitter account to be shut down, apparently, by the government, probably by the Trump administration directly, because, you know, that's a government agency. I would argue that it was perfectly relevant for them to retweet two photos of two big events at one of their parks. I mean, let's be clear. It's their area. That's the the National Mall. That's a park. It's under their jurisdiction, as far as I know. And so all they did was retweet a photo, two photos next to each other. But because the photos showed Trump's crowd to be so much tinier than Obama's, that somehow was inherently political. And by the way, it's not inherently political because had the two crowds been exactly the same or somehow Trump's was larger, no one would have objected. Trump would have been thrilled. So the the retweeting or the tweeting of two photos that are real, taken at effectively the same time from basically the same place, that is not political. That's something called the truth. That's the truth. It's not inherently political. Now, you could draw some political conclusions from it, but that's that's not on the person who sends out the photos. Photos, if real, are not inherently political. They're the truth. But the first sign of trouble was when the Interior Department had their Twitter account handcuffed and eventually got back online. They apologized. <laughs> They apologize for retweeting photos of one of their own parks. And all it was was just the crowd at the inauguration. That was the first sign of problem. But then when Trump decides at the CIA that he's going to make a big stinking deal about this, and let's be clear, the news media, I know a lot of Trumpsters out there, oh, this was a news media issue. He was just correcting them. Bullshit. Bullshit. The tweet from the New York Times got a lot of play, but it was just a freaking tweet. And on the television coverage, the size of the crowd got almost no play, almost nothing. And by the way, it could have because the crowd at the parade was pathetic. I mean, that is, and that's frankly probably what got under Trump's skin because that he could see because that was just a few feet away from him. But the bleachers were mostly empty during most of the parade route. So that had to really irritate the man who's that insecure and whose ego is everything. And the reality is that Trump decided that he was going to fight back. This was not something created by the news media at all. I thought the coverage of Inauguration Day that I saw and I was living through all the networks was pretty darn respectful and pretty darn positive. It felt to me like they were all saying, you know what? We're going to give this guy his day, and that you know that that means that by tomorrow we can come out with all guns blazing, assuming that there's reason to do that. So he had nothing really to complain about, and by the way, he had numerous legitimate explanations for why the crowd at his inauguration was nowhere near as large as Obama's. Number one, Washington D.C has a population that is at least 85, 90% black. Barack Obama was the first black president. Donald Trump got, I think, like 4.5% of the vote in Washington, D.C. Hotels are incredibly expensive in Washington, D.C. and the area. Trump's voters would have had to have come from a very long way because... Trump got crushed in Northern Virginia. He got crushed in Maryland. He got crushed in Delaware. I mean, 
So anybody coming from Trump land, the closest would be like rural Pennsylvania or, or maybe West Virginia or Southern Virginia. That, you know, that's still several hour drive. So there were all sorts of reasons why the crowd was never going to be as big for Trump as it was for Obama, but that, that can't be allowed to stand in Trump world. So in front of the CIA, he makes it all about him. By the way, if you can judge how insane a Newsday is based upon what gets no attention, Saturday must have been about a 9.9 out of 10 on the insanity level. Because Donald Trump, newly minted president of the United States, told the CIA, one, that he was against the war in Iraq, which he wasn't. There's no record of that. But more importantly, two, that we should have taken Iraq's oil and that, oh, by the way, maybe we'll have a chance to do that in the future. It's just flat out ridiculous. Seriously. To the CIA. In front of the CIA memorial, as president of the United States, and it got almost no attention because there were so many other bizarre things happening, including the first press briefing by Sean Spicer, the press secretary, that was as a direct result of the two other things I just talked about. The Interior Department retweeting the New York Times photos. Trump going off at the CIA, and it's obvious to anybody who understands how this works, and specifically Donald Trump thinks, that Sean Spicer got sent out to do one thing. And by the way, this wasn't just any press briefing. This was his first press briefing, and it was unscheduled. He comes out unscheduled to do a press briefing, and what does he do? What does he talk about? Does he talk about... The first day agenda, by the way, an agenda that uh, that Trump talked about constantly, what he was going to do on day one. On day one, I'm going to do this. On day one, I'm going to do that. On day one, I'm going to do this. No, nothing like that. No, no. He takes the news media to task for supposedly inaccurately reporting the size of President Trump's inauguration crowd. I wish I was making this up. You can't parody this. But he did that, by the way, not just uh, in a little bit of anger. He was pissed off, or at least pretending to be pissed off. And he took the media out, which <laughs> one of the great tragedies of the Trump presidency is, you know, I despise the news media more than anybody on the planet. And I think it's great in some ways that he's giving it to them, but he's giving it to them on all the wrong things. Of all the things you could give it to the media on, couldn't you pick one that one was relevant and two you were actually right on instead of your lying, claiming that this is the largest crowd in the history of inaugurations when it obviously was not? And by the way, it's not just photographs that show this. The statistics for who rode the metro system in D.C. make it clear it wasn't even close. And there's almost no other way to get there other than the metro is somebody who went to school in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University. This is not a complicated issue. Trump's inauguration was nowhere near as well attended as Obama's first and probably not his second one either. But who cares? So Spicer goes out there and destroys his credibility forever by lying, not just on the fact, but also on several sub-facts like claiming things that weren't true, that they had, this was the first year they used a white mat, not true, that they were using the magnometers or whatever the hell they're called to, uh, on the side of the park, which was keeping people out, not true. They weren't being used. And by the way, all you need to know is just look at the damn photograph. There was nobody on the, the side of the park trying to get into the park. Nobody, nothing, nada. So he was lying. This was straight out of George Orwell's 1984. Unfortunately, very few of any Trump fans have ever read the book. But if you did, your blood was chilled when you watched Sean Spicer because we officially left the gravitational pull of the rational truth-based earth. We're now in a post-truth world. Kellyanne Conway, Trump's 
former campaign manager, actually came up with a new phrase to describe it. She said that Spicer was providing alternative facts. Alternative facts, which was trending number one on Twitter for much of the morning today on Sunday. Alternative facts. Folks, this is a very scary situation. This is the first day, a day that he's been planning for months or at least a month since he won, two months really, and the the reality is all that was lost. All those plans for what was going to happen on day one, totally gone, all to stroke a fake billionaire con man's fragile ego whose insecurities are so dramatic that even the glow of his inauguration hasn't even faded yet, and he has to go to the CIA to talk about the size of his crowd. And then he has to send out his press secretary without, by the way, it's important to point out, there will be consequences for this. I don't see how Sean Spicer survives very long because... On your first day, on his first day, he was forced to give up all of his credibility with the press corps. And that's all a press secretary has. Now, I've held a lot of jobs in my life, far too many. But I have to say, one of the things I've learned from being in a lot of jobs, you can tell a lot about that first day on the job. A lot. And I mean, I think in retrospect, I probably could have told you almost exactly how each of the jobs that I had would turn out based upon the first day. Maybe not 100%, maybe not perfectly, but you get a pretty good feel. And based on that, folks, this whole Trump thing, uh, not only am I going to be right, as is often the case, if my other than Trump not winning the election, you know, normally my predictions are pretty good. The greatest frailty or vulnerability to my predictions normally is not that they things don't happen like I say they will. Things often happen more quickly than I think. Because I'm actually, even though I'm perceived as a pessimist, I'm actually, in many ways, delusionally optimistic. I was shocked that we've already gotten to this point this fast after one day with Donald Trump, where we're sending out press secretaries to lie about inconsequential things in order to soothe a hurt ego of a president who had no reason to have his ego even remotely bruised. He's president of the freaking United States. It's amazing. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really fascinated by and somewhat frustrated by of many is that there's this debate among what's left of the conservative intelligentsia, like on Twitter, about, okay, was this a trap? Was this a brilliant ploy by, by Trump to bait the news media into a battle? And he's going to make the news media into his enemy since he can't really, can't really make anybody else's enemy. The, the, and the news media has such low approval ratings. He's going to make this about us versus them. And, and no, one hate, no one likes the news media, so this is a battle he can win. And he's distracting from other things. Or well, maybe it's, he's distracting from Russia or whatever the hell he's distracting from. And basically they give him a lot of credit that he's playing like three-dimensional or eight-dimensional chess, that there's all these moves that have been incredibly well calculated. I don't buy that. There have been times when I thought, okay, maybe he really is that smart, or maybe someone around someone around him is really that smart. Uh-uh. I think this is Oxum's razor. I think he's playing... Checkers, not chess. I think, and by the way, the checkers pieces he wants to take have nothing to do with making America great again. They have to do with making Donald Trump feel good about himself. That's what it is. And that's really, by the way, that's the underlying premise of almost all of our media now. As an aside... It's, a, it's amazing to me how we've gotten into a world now where the number one job of news media, not just entertainment media, entertainment media, I understand, news media, the number one job is make your base of support feel better about what they already wanted to believe. 
It's just propaganda. And that goes for everybody, but especially Fox News Channel, and especially places like the Drudge Report, Breitbart.com. Nary a negative word. Don't even talk about something that, you know, regardless of whether it's the truth. If it doesn't make your core audience feel better about what about themselves and about whatever it is that they already wanted to believe, exercise it. It doesn't exist. Censor it out. You're going to create a safe little bubble for everybody to live in so that they'll continue to consume your product and therefore you can make money out of it. That's the business model. And that's why journalism is dead. Because it's all about being popular and making feel people making people feel good about themselves and about whatever it is they already wanted to believe. And Trump knows that if he can keep his core, whether that's 30 or 40% of the electorate, keep them jazzed up, keep them safely in, in, ensconced in that bubble of post-truth America, and you've already discredited the news media, then he can pretty much do what he wants. I mean, I've seen numerous Trump fans on Twitter say that the photographs of the inauguration were faked or they were taken at a different time. Or I mean, it doesn't the, the excuses are just such bull crap. I love the poorly educated. It doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter who reports it. As a matter of fact, if it's the New York Times or the Washington Post, now allegedly reputable News organizations, which I have taken issue with both of them. I despise both of them in many ways. But generally, generally, their reporting is is credible. They make mistakes. By the way, I think the New York Times made a big mistake this week claiming that Rick Perry didn't understand what the energy department did with regard to nuclear weapons. I think that was proven. So they're absolutely biased. My, I'm on the record as far as much as anyone can be here. But by and large, you can't just without evidence, say, oh, it's in the New York Times, it's in the Washington Post, therefore it's false. It's fake news. But that's what Trump has trained his supporters to do, and that's what they did with this. And so to Trump's supporters, with few exceptions, this Sean Spicer thing, as chilling as it is, as outrageous as as it is, as insane as it is, it will have very little impact. Now, I will say, I did get a couple of messages, and this is just a, you know the, the first little drops in the bucket, but I did get a couple of messages from fairly big Trump supporters, not big as in, you know, celebrities, but people who I knew to be very strongly in favor of Trump who were expressing to me in the last 24 hours, I'm having a little bit of buyer's remorse here. I have no way of knowing what kind of percentage that is, but it's it's the first cracks in the foundation of his base support that I've seen. But I see, I, I think there's different layers to that foundation. Now, he got 46% of the vote. He actually only got 27% of the eligible electorate. But by and large, I would say approximately a third, somewhere in that range, of the adult population are pretty strong Trump supporters. And that's all he cares about. He just wants to keep that going, which is a very different governing philosophy than anyone else has ever had. And it might work in this fragmented media age. Everything is fragmented. So if you can capture a smaller but more passionate portion of the overall audience, that can work for you. And Trump understands that. And he is a master, master media manipulator. No question about that. But by and large, on this chess versus checkers thing, I think it's, it's, it's much more about checkers than chess. And I think yesterday was all about just making Trump feel better about himself, which is amazing because you've just sacrificed Sean Spicer, who by all accounts is a pretty good guy, but I don't see how he survives. He's now a joke. Before he's even had his first scheduled press session, he's a joke. And nobody in the news media will take anything he says seriously. It's just amazing. You know, one of the things I think we've learned, and I wrote about this for media, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, in the things that we learned from the inauguration, is that going along with this 33% theory of mine, I now think that Trump is basically leading a third party. He is, you know, it's not just philosophically that he's not a Republican president. I think he's he is effectively being president as leader 
of a third party that just currently has a very tenuous alliance with the Republican Party. In hour number two, Democratic Congressman John Yarmuth talks very openly about what Republicans are saying behind closed doors in Congress. And he says 85% of them are completely freaked out. Which, that number sounds high to me, but I believe what John's telling me. The reality is, they have an alliance with him, much like if we had a parliamentary form of government and Trump was kind of a hybrid king prime minister and he created an alliance with the Republican Party because he knew that would be the only way for him to get elected and for him to ha- you know, have a coalition government is what they would call it in a parliamentary system. And I don't even know whether or not he holds a majority of that of that portion. I mean, it's close, it's depending on how you define it. But the reality is that this is a very tenuous alliance that could be easily shredded. It could be easily shredded, for instance, by the way, if he bails on a hardcore conservative Supreme Court justice nominee, which I think the Democrats, if they play their cards right, can force him to do. Or at the very least, they can force the Senate Republicans into nuking the filibuster, which will have devastating consequences both to the Constitution and to the Republican Party in the long run once they lose control of this whole thing goes in the shitter like it might. So assuming they don't get rid of the filibuster, I see that Chuck Schumer can force Trump, who really has no interest in that fight. It's not his thing. It really isn't. He doesn't give a crap about a conservative Supreme Court. He doesn't care about pro-life. He's in favor of imminent domain. He's in, he doesn't believe in the First Amendment. He, he didn't give a crap about the Second Amendment until he was running for office and, and knew that that was a big issue with the demographic he was appealing to. So he, he's going to get tired of that fight. Trump always tires with a fight. He always negotiates out of it and then declares victory. That's what he did. Even did it with the Trump University lawsuit thing. He paid twenty five million dollars, which is an amazing scandal in of itself. But that was after he said he would never settle. And you can't believe anything this guy said. He's been married three times. Three times he's promised death to us part, and twice he's broken it, and probably will the third time eventually once. Milani is not hot anymore, and he's out of office, or unless he's dead. I mean, the, the reality is that I think the Democrats have a really great chance to splinter that alliance, and the Supreme Court nominee is going to be the easiest way to do that. Not that it will be easy. It'll be a tough battle because Mitch McConnell understands the stakes, and he's the one that's going to be probably more in charge than Trump. But... Based upon what happened with those rallies, those incredible rallies nationwide on Saturday with four to five million women across the country coming out to basically protest Trump all over the country. Really hard for me to see how the Democrats don't put up an epic fight over a uh, ardently pro-life white male conservative Supreme Court nominee. As much as I would very much like, for instance, a Justice Pryor out of Alabama to be nominated and to be appointed to the Supreme Court, I just, I think it'll be really difficult to get that done without giving away not just the, the barn, the farm, the house, everything. I, 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 just, I just don't see, again, keeping with the entire theme of the Trump presidency, the price is going to be awfully high, way too high in all likelihood. By the way, something happened today with regard to other nominations that was significant. John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who are very much like Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas used to be on the Supreme Court, where they were basically in lockstep on everything, like they're married. Well, not that married people are in lockstep on anything. I should should retract that statement based upon my own experiences, but I think you understand what I was trying to say. Both John McCain and Lindsey Graham have announced that they will be voting for Rex Tillerson as the Secretary of State nominee. 
Now, Marco Rubio is now probably in a position where he's going to probably go along with the Tillerson vote in committee as well. I don't know what he's going to do. Maybe he'll say no in committee and yes uh, on the floor or or maybe vice versa. Maybe he'll, he'll vote yes in committee and then no on the floor, knowing that Tillerson will still be confirmed. I'm not sure. I have to say that my own view, you know, a lot of people are going to say that McCain is a hypocrite because he said – Basically, he would. He, I think his words were, "Yeah, I might vote for Tillerson, and pigs might fly someday," which certainly sounds as if you're contradicting yourself. That he would never vote for him, largely because of Tillerson's very close relationship with Vladimir Putin, literally a friend of Putin, having gotten an award for that. I have to say that my own view on Tillerson has has evolved as well. When it was first announced, I was very much in objection to the nomination, not because I had any major problem with Tillerson. I didn't know that much about him. But to me, the problem was what it said about Trump. You got Michael Flynn as national security advisor, friend of Putin, and Secretary of State Tillerson, friend of Putin, and all these connections between Trump and Putin and the issue of the dossier. So my concern was, okay, what the hell is really going on here? What does this say about Donald Trump? And are we being blind to what should be a really startling, shocking issue, which is that, you know, holy cow, our president might be compromised by Vladimir Putin and by Russia. And what changed my mind about this was not my feeling about the issue of Russia, but oftentimes, and this is one of the things about politics that people don't understand, oftentimes, when someone is perceived as being very much in one direction on an issue, it actually forces them to be very con on that issue once they're actually in office. In other words, and it works in the, in the opposite way too. The, the ultimate example of this is I have always said and still believe it, that there is a far greater chance that, some sort of comprehensive immigration bill gets through Congress and is signed by the president when Trump is in office than would ever happen with Hillary because Trump has enormous street cred on the issue. And so his people, unless they somehow are convinced they're portrayed, which they're not going to be because Trump controls the conservative media industrial complex, so unless he loses Matt Drudge and Breitbart and Fox News Channel, he can get away with being soft on illegal immigration and signing a compromise bill because he's got street cred on that issue. So it actually works out the opposite of the way that it it might in conventional wisdom or in what your perception might be. Well, the same thing works with Tillerson because it's pretty well known that both he and Trump have a liking for Putin. I think in in the real world, it actually makes Tillerson less likely to be a stooge for Putin. And what helped me come to this conclusion, oddly enough, was a conversation I had with my father. You know, my father, I've I've mentioned this before, did some pretty significant business with Donald Trump many, many years ago. What I did not know until very recently is that he's also had some pretty significant contact with Rex Tillerson. And... His view, and he does not like Trump at all. In fact, he probably likes Trump less than I do. His view that is that Tillerson will never put up with any kind of bullshit from Donald Trump. And that if you want somebody in there who's not going to be a, a yes man and who will do his own thing and that will tell you know, Trump to go screw himself when necessary, Tillerson's your guy. So when you can... Combine the fact that he's already vulnerable perception-wise on the on the Russia issue, and the fact that his personality, according to my father and from what I've seen in the in the hearings, is not one of a wallflower. You know what? I'll take it because the alternative is probably much worse. And you know what? If our president is is compromised, there's not much we can do about it anyway. But at least Tillerson. You know, the enemy you know is sometimes better than the enemy you don't. And and certainly he knows the enemy. He's buddies with Putin, and there's advantages to that. 
So, while I'm not in love with Tillerson, you know, he's going to be confirmed. And like I said, I, I think there are now worse options uh, than Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. And of course, Condoleezza Rice also apparently promoted him for the job. And that means something to me because I still like Condoleezza Rice. Of course, that was bizarre that that happened because Trump's somebody who thinks that the Iraq War was wrong and that the Bush administration effectively allowed 9 11 to happen, both of which under, happened under Condoleezza Rice's watch. She was National Security Advisor and then later Secretary of State and was obviously in favor of the Iraq War. But here she is uh, having a major influence over who his Secretary of State pick is, which is just, you know, typically bizarre for the Trump presidency. But that's the world we're living in. And it's, it's strange to say the least. Uh, in hour number two with uh, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, I do get into the issue of Barack Obama's last few days in office, and specifically the commutation of the sentence for, I guess you call her Chelsea Manning's, previously Bradley Manning. And uh, Chelsea had a sex change operation in prison and now is getting out of prison, even though she he was convicted of providing governmental secrets to WikiLeaks. And it's just so strange, so typical of our bizarro world times that here President Obama, who effectively has blamed WikiLeaks and Russia for influencing our elections and getting Donald Trump elected, here he is commuting the sentence of someone convicted of giving our secrets to WikiLeaks and doing so effectively because of the sex change operation. Well, Congressman Yarmouth and I have a very interesting conversation about that in hour number two, which I hope you will check out. One last point before we go in hour number one. Today, this Sunday, is not only the, uh, with regard to football, it's obviously the A championship games, but today is the fifth anniversary of the death of Joe Paterno, the former head football coach at Penn State who in the public perception has been disgraced because of his alleged involvement in the whole Jerry Sandusky scandal. As you probably know, if you know anything about me, I've spent most of the last five years investigating this case, having no connection to Penn State whatsoever, and now actually having disdain for Penn State for the way that they've handled the entire situation from A to Z. And it is my belief having more knowledge about the case than any human being alive, including Jerry Sandusky, and way more than Joe Paterno did when he died. I mean, I'm talking way more than Joe Paterno did when he died five years ago today. I now believe that the whole thing was a myth and that this was the worst case of media malpractice that I have ever heard of. That the media created a narrative two or three days into this story back in 2011. They fell in love with it. Penn State panicked fired Joe Paterno, and this set off a nuclear explosion which caused a domino effect of injustice that has caused everything since, and no one bothered to check the beginning of the story. No one checked the original math on which the nuclear explosion was based. I checked the math. The math doesn't add up. It's not even close. And you can check it for yourself. At my website, FramingPaterno.com. That's www.FramingPaterno.com. It's not a conspiracy theory. Framing was intended to be figurative, not literal. In fact, I'm the only non-conspiracy person in the whole damn case, and I know way more about it than anybody. So if you care at all about the truth of this case, check out the website. But five years ago today, a legend, a man who had an exemplary 61-year career at Penn State, won more football games than anyone in the history of college football, died at least in part because of this media rush to judgment, where the news media cared far more about ratings and didn't give a damn about the truth and didn't care who they destroyed in their pursuit of this mythology, this great narrative that was so amazing, and yet it was based in falsehoods. Effectively, the news media became five-year-olds believing in Santa Claus. There was no convincing them after that. After Paterno was fired and then dies, they are locked in. Because if they are wrong, not only does their credibility go to crap even more than it already has, but now they're responsible for the destruction of a great man's entire life 
and maybe even caused his death. But that's what happened. And I'm not even a little bit <laughs> I'm not a little bit convinced of this. I'm 101% convinced of this. It, it, you know, if if it, if I could go to 11, these go to 11. Yeah, I would go to 11 on my certainty, especially on the Joe Paterno aspect of this. And I had something interesting happen. I've had so many really strange moments. So it's hard to to describe or to comprehend a, you know, a top 10 or even a top 100 list of the weirdest things that have happened in the last five years in my life because of my major mistake of pursuing the truth. Because no one gives a shit about the truth. Nobody, especially in this case. No one cares about the, This is one of those crimes better left unsolved. Speaking of Spinal Tap, which is what we just quoted from. These go to 11. But uh, th- no one wants the truth in this case. Nobody. Even though the, the truth is actually far more interesting and, you know, no one got sexually abused in the truth. But you would think you would think that would be a story people would want. But no, we're living in very strange times. But yesterday I had something very odd happen. Uh, as you probably know, Penn State recently played in the Rose Bowl, which was amazing considering their recovery from this whole scandal and the NCAA sanctions, which ended up getting revoked. And during the broadcast of the Rose Bowl, college football legend Keith Jackson. I mean, and Keith Jackson, if you know anything about college football, he is a true legend. By far the most famous voice in the entire history of college football. One of the most famous voices in the history of sports broadcasting. He made an appearance on the broadcast. And he did not look well. He lives in the Pasadena area, and he had not been on television in several years. He retired about 10 years ago, and uh, he said a couple things in the midst of seemingly not being of good health and his voice nowhere near what it used to be. He said something about his respect for the Penn State program, which I knew had to be because of his experience with Joe Paterno because – he hadn't been broadcasting and been around the game since, you know, Paterno had, had died and after he'd been fired. So I thought, okay, he's attending the game out of his respect for the Penn State program. That means his respect for, for Joe Paterno. That means he must have suspicions that this whole story is bullshit. And he would know because he was around the game closer than anybody and had broadcast many, many Penn State games over the years. So I decided to write to Keith Jackson. And just said, hey, look, uh, Mr. Jackson, big fan, uh, here's what I've been doing for the last five years. If you're inter- ever interested in knowing what really happened, here's how you can get in touch with me. I'd be happy to meet with you since I live in the Los Angeles area. And I figured, what are the chances I'm ever going to hear anything about this? So I'm working, ironically enough, I'm working on an article about the subject for a, a law website in, in uh, Philadelphia. And my cell phone rings. And I and it's just a regular number, Los Angeles number, and I answer it. And sure enough, on the other end is the voice, the legendary voice of Keith Jackson. Oh, Nelly. And he sounded really remarkably well, much better than he did on the Rose Bowl broadcast. And we had a fascinating conversation. And the the bottom line of it, and, and I, I don't want to quote him because it wasn't off the record, although he never said off the record. I, I didn't perceive it to be an on-the-record conversation. But it was very clear to me, very clear to me, that based upon his extensive experience with both Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky, with whom he had played golf numerous times and spent a lot of time with him, it was very clear to me that uh, after I had explained to him my view of the case, that he had a very strong suspicion that I was right. And I'm not overselling that. I'm I'm pretty darn confident Keith Jackson knows I'm right, which, by the way, is a, is something that I've happened had happened with numerous big names involved in this story, and consistent with that experience, of course, of course, Keith Jackson also said, "But I don't want to get involved," which has happened on numerous occasions to me, where people very close to the case, big names, theoretically would have an influence, or certainly would at least get media coverage, know that this whole thing, or at least part of it is bullcrap, but they want to do nothing. And frankly, with regard to Keith Jackson, I didn't blame him. I mean, he has no dog in his hunt. He's 88 years old. He actually told me, you know, I said, how are you doing? Are you enjoying life? He said, well, you know, I don't think I have much more to live. 
And he was very honest. He said, I'm 88. I don't think I'm going to be around for much longer. I said, well, look, I, I appreciate you calling, and uh, I just wanted you to know what the truth was. And I think he, I think he appreciated it, and I think he, he knew what the truth was, but consistent with what, <laughs> what has been the perfect storm for this case, he'll never say anything about it. And again, I don't blame him because it's not really his thing, and he's 88, and he, his retirement was another part of this whole perfect storm. Because if someone like that had still been at the top of his game when the shit hit the fan in November of 2011 instead of being retired, then people might have gone, whoa, or may have gone, whoa, Nelly. They might have gone, wait a minute, this doesn't make any damn sense. But instead, Keith Jackson is retired, and if you're retired, you don't want any part of this, especially something as toxic as this. You don't want this to be your last chapter, especially when the media is going to destroy you. So no one wants to get in front of the freight train, and I understand it. I get it. I was stupid enough to to not get that memo or not not, not believe that memo or not listen to it. But uh, anyway, I thought you would find that conversation with Keith Jackson to be interesting. I know I did. Once again, the website is framingpaterno.com. Once again, the website for this podcast is freespeechbroadcasting.com. You can check out all of the articles I write for Mediate. There are three new ones this week, two involving Trump and the inauguration, one involving a story that we talked about on last week's podcast involving the Philadelphia Catholic Church scandal and a great interview I did with a reporter who's had an extraordinarily similar experience on that case as I have had with Penn State. So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Make sure you check out hour number two with Democratic Congressman John Yarmuth. Our interview is absolutely a must listen. I'm John Ziegler, and make sure you do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who ever sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, make sure you pay attention to this important message. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.